And what more shall I say? For time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, from weakness were made strong, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection, and others were tortured, not accepting their release so that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others experienced mockings and scourgings, yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, they were put to death with the sword, they went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, men of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. And all these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised, because God had provided something better for us, so that apart from us, they would not be made perfect. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Father, let us praise and join the chorus of the saints enthroned on high. Here they trusted Him before us and now their praises fill the sky. Lord, we want to join that chorus. We want to praise You with them. We want to live for You with these saints of old who surround us as a great cloud of witnesses. We want to not be ashamed of You. We want to love our lives little enough that we would be willing to lay them down for Jesus and want to love them not even unto death. And we want with the saints of old to fix our eyes on Jesus who is the author and perfecter of our faith who suffered more than anyone ever suffered. Who had the weight of the Sins of your people for all time, every single one of them laid on his shoulders as he went to the cross and far more than any physical pain that he went through, the pain of that, of you turning your face away, of you scourging him so that we might be healed. What a Savior we have. Let us live for His praise. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. And now as we open Your Word, we pray that You help us be motivated, strengthened, encouraged to run. Not just to run, but to run with our eyes fixed on Jesus. And we pray in His name. Amen. My grandmother in the last decade or so of her life was constantly immersed in genealogy. She was always 
uh, looking up family trees and going to cities and looking in the courthouses for information about our ancestry. Uh, and probably a lot of you have someone like that in your family. Lots of families have someone who seems always to be examining all the branches of the family tree. And to you or, or to the, those that aren't of that bent, uh, these ancestral botanists can seem a little bit quirky to us as they constantly examine the tree. Uh, and I felt that way about my grandmother uh, until one day uh, she presented me with a sheet of paper uh, front and back, which was a chart of my ancestral lineage dating back to the Middle Ages. And I don't know how accurate or exact it was. I think she was quite reliable in this regard. Um, But if my grandmother was right, I discovered that I'm a direct descendant of Robert the Bruce of Braveheart fame, the first king of Scotland. That was pretty exciting for me keeping a close eye on their uh, push for independence because if there's not an heir to the throne, then I have paperwork to say uh, that I could be that. But still, she handed me that sheet of paper, and I thought, this is kind of bizarre to to do this and to spend time on this. Um, But I have to say that I was much more grateful just a couple of years before she passed away when my grandmother gave me uh, a more lengthy and more personal document, namely her autobiography, typed out on her computer, printed on a little desk jet printer and bound up in a three-ring folder. It was a great privilege for me to read that and to have a better idea of where I come from. It's a reminder that as peculiar as they may seem, these folks who constantly look back to our heritage are quite helpful to us. And... The importance of heritage, my heritage and yours, came home to me even more strongly uh, this week as I reread Hebrews chapter 11. These men and women that we've just read here that are eulogized in this chapter aren't necessarily our physical descendants, but they are our ancestors in the faith. Because if we are believers in Jesus, Paul says in Galatians 9 that we, like the men and women of old, are sons of Abraham by faith. Galatians 3, 9. I was reminded then that these people form my spiritual ancestry. And I was reminded that what John Patton said was right. John Patton was a missionary to what we call Vanuatu. In the 1800s, he was a descendant of Scottish Christian martyrs, and he said this about himself, I am more proud that the blood of martyrs is in my veins and their truths in my heart than other men can be of noble pedigree or royal names. And I read that, and I thought of it again this week, and I know that he's speaking of martyrs, martyrs in his physical family tree, but it reminded me that we should be able to say the same thing of our spiritual ancestors spoken of here in the end of Hebrews 11. We ought to be able to say something like this. I am more proud that these beloved, faithful, suffering saints form my spiritual pedigree than I am to be a descendant of Robert I, King of Scots. Much more proud. So important that we remember and be thankful for those who have gone before us in the faith and have suffered for Christ. Important enough that the Bible gives us a whole chapter to remind us to do so. What an encouragement there is in remembering these men and women of faith. 
Here, just in the end of Hebrews 11, we find men like Daniel, verse 33, who would rather have been thrown to the lions than to deny his only Lord. In verse 37, for instance, we're reminded of Stephen, who in the book of Acts was stoned for saying that Jesus was the Christ and who didn't give in. We're reminded again in verse 37 of Isaiah, who tradition teaches us is the subject of this clause. They were sawn in two. And here we're reminded of nameless and countless brothers and sisters in the Lord who were driven from their homes and who had to live and meet for worship, verse 38, in caves and in holes in the ground. It's an amazing spiritual heritage we have. What fearless, godly, noble stock we come from in the family of faith. And the biblical characters aren't the only ones that we can look to. I was reading this week about a 17th century preacher named John Flavel who pastored in Dartmouth on the English seacoast. And when persecution from the British crown became so heavy on Flavel and other ministers of the gospel and their churches that they were no longer permitted to meet on Sundays for worship. Flavel and his congregation would paddle out in rowboats to a rock in the middle of the English Channel simply that they could worship there undisturbed. And when the tide would rise and cover the rock, then they would know that the service was over and they would row back home. There's great strength and Encouragement in tracing the branches of our spiritual family tree. There's great encouragement here for us not to give up in the face of difficulty. There's great rebuke here, I think, for our murmuring American psyches. Here we read about people who were, verse 35, tortured for their faith and who didn't give in, didn't accept their release. And we murmur so much about so little. These people remind us what's really important, don't they? What is really important? That we serve God. Some of you may be thinking about areas where you ought to serve God and you're wondering if it's really worth it and there's a lot of things that seem to pull at you and you need to read the stories of the saints of old who were tortured and who met for worship in holes in the ground because the most important thing was to serve God. Let me give you a for instance. Some of you may be contemplating in your hearts whether it's really worth it for you to to spend the the effort and get your hands dirty working in the nursery. I'm not sure if I want to do that. I'm not sure if it's worth it to me. That would be a lot of extra trouble. What's most important? Clean hands or serving the Lord? These people are a reminder too that we mustn't forget our brothers and sisters in Christ who are today going about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, afflicted, and ill-treated. Verse 37. Brothers and sisters in Myanmar who are destitute and afflicted this morning, not because of their faith, but because of where they live. The persecuted church in China. Believers in Sudan, over a million of them martyred over the last 25 years. There's a great deal for us to gain. There's a great deal of benefit from reading the stories of the men and women of faith who have gone before us. Whether they're biblical stories or extra biblical stories. Whether they're ancient stories or modern stories. 
The men and women of old have a lot to teach us. And the author of Hebrews is reminding us that. And then in verse 1, chapter 12, he calls them a great cloud of witnesses. A great cloud of witnesses watching us. Now the word witnesses here in Hebrews 12 is often in the Greek translated into English martyrs. And we can see why at the end of Hebrews 11. Witness and martyr are the same word in Greek. But in the context of these two verses, Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, our author doesn't want simply to think of them as witnesses in the martyr sense, though they were and are in some places in the world, but he also wants us to think of them as witnesses in the sense of a gathered throng at a track and field event is actually the illustration he's going to give us. We have a great cloud of witnesses, a crowd cheering us on as we run for Jesus. That's what he says here. And and he's speaking of the people in Hebrews 11, and God has added many to their number since that day. There's a great cloud of witnesses surrounding us. Now, I don't know how literally we're to understand this. In other words, are the saints in heaven literally sitting in heaven watching us and, and rooting for us to win the prize? Or is it simply that he's saying their example and their memory cheer us on? Either way, we ought to be urged on. We ought to be cheered on and encouraged and rebuked and reminded when we hear stories like these. We, like John Patton, have the blood of martyrs in our veins. We have a great cloud of witnesses surrounding us, martyrs for Jesus, witnesses to the faithfulness of Jesus to hear his people's prayers and make good on his promises and witnesses of our leg of the Christian race. They have, as it were, passed the baton to us and they are watching to see how well we are going to run. Are we going to look like the men and women of old? So the question is, after this long passage about the men and women of old and their faith, what do we do given the fact of such a great spiritual heritage? That's the question when my grandmother hands me, handed me these documents. What am I to make of this? I'm not sure all I'm to make of my physical ancestry, but the Bible does tell us what should we make of the great spiritual heritage that we have when we read our pedigree in Hebrews 11. What should we do well, three things in verses 1 and 2 of Hebrews 12. Three answers, and they're all given in track and field terminology. We are to lay aside certain things. We are to run. And verse 2, we are to look at Jesus. Lay aside, run, and look. Now, I want to take each of those techniques individually and try to Think them out together. The first is lay aside. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside. Now, we'll come back in a moment and think about what we are to lay aside. But for now, just think about that verb clause, lay aside. We've already noted that our author is painting for us a picture of a foot race. That's the metaphor he's going to use throughout these two verses of a race. And the metaphor begins with this phrase, lay aside. What does that mean? Well, you picture a sprinter going out onto the track and he's got his warm-up suit on. And before he gets into the blocks and begins to run, he undoes the zipper and he takes it off and he lays it aside because it would slow him down if he ran with that jogging suit on. 
The same thing could be true next week if we're out there having a picnic and someone challenges you to a foot race across the front lawn. You would probably lay aside your sport coat or your tie or your high heels or your jewelry or your keys or any of those things that might tangle you up and restrict you. Or if you're really serious, you'd say, this is going to slow down my aerodynamics. And so I'm going to lay it aside. Well, professional runners are that serious, aren't they? Anything that's going to slow them down aerodynamically or tangle them up, they will take it off and they will lay it aside. They want to be as efficient as possible. And what Paul, or excuse me, the author of Hebrews really has in mind here is ancient runners, probably Olympic-type runners, who laid everything aside and literally ran without clothing on. They didn't have the spandex that sprinters wear now. And so in order to be able to run as fast as they could, they laid all their clothing aside and they ran. We see this with Peter when he sees Jesus on the shore and he's in the boat and he takes his clothes off and he dives in and swims to Jesus. He takes things off. He lays them aside to get where he's going as fast as he can. And that, says the author, is what we want to do as well. Just like an athlete who wants to run as well as he can, as fast as he can, there are certain things that we must lay aside too. Now the first is fairly obvious. I think we would guess it even if it weren't written here in verse 1, namely that we should lay aside sin. He says that here. Let us also lay aside the sin which so easily entangles us. I think we would all say that. That's fairly obvious that we should lay aside sin. But we all know it generically, but let's apply it specifically. Is there a sin which so easily entangles you? You as an individual, where you sit this morning, is there a sin that you would say, yes, this particular thing easily entangles me? I get tripped up in it all the time. Is there a besetting sin in your life? A sin which seems to have a stronger pull on you than others. A sin which seems particularly to sap you of your spiritual zeal. A sin that tends to fuel the fires of other sins that flow from it. Is there a particular sin or perhaps sins in your life right now that you could say, that so easily entangles me? Would you... Just ask if the Holy Spirit even now would help you put your finger right on it. What is the sin that so easily entangles you? Whatever it is, Hebrews 12.1 is reminding you that as difficult as it may be, you need to lay that sin aside. If you are really to run well, if you are truly to finish strong in this race called the Christian life, you must lay that sin aside, whatever it is. You must continually bring it to Jesus in confession. You must not coddle it and treat it like a friend. You must, as James says, confess that sin to others so that they can pray for you and hold you accountable. You must, as Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, gouge out your eye and cut off your hand. In other words, Cut off all the avenues of temptation at which or through which that sin comes at you. You need to stop going to the place or stop hanging with the person or stop buying the thing that tempts you toward that sin that so easily entangles you. You must lay it aside. That much, I hope, is obvious. We must lay aside the sins that so easily entangle us. Obvious, though not easy. 
But there's something else that we must lay aside that might not be as obvious were it not written here in black and white. What is it? What else must we lay aside? Well, verse 1 reminds us not only that we need to lay aside sin, but that we also need to lay aside every encumbrance. Encumbrance is anything that tightens you up, uh, slows you up as you try to run. Anything that's in your way. So as an athlete who is serious about winning the prize, surely cuts out bad things, yes. I mean, if an athlete's serious about winning the prize, he's certainly going to cut out things that he knows are bad for him. Drug use or poor dietary habits or staying up too late at night or whatever it may be. But he doesn't just lay aside things that are positively bad. He also lays aside every encumbrance. Anything that might in some senses be good, but that is not good for him if he's trying to run a race, he lays it aside. Whether it's his warm-up suit or his watch or his sunglasses or his jewelry or whatever it may be, he sets it aside in the infield of the track and gets ready to run with no encumbrances. And we must do the same, the author says. There are for every single one of us encumbrances in our lives which though they aren't necessarily sinful, are not best for someone who's trying to run for Jesus. And for each of us, they may not be immediately obvious. Some of them are probably obvious to you. But they may seem like things that really aren't that big of a deal. I can run for Jesus with this stuff tied around my waist. It's not that big a deal. They may sound like things, as I list some of them in a moment, that the pastor has no business meddling with, but I want you to see that it's the author of Hebrews, not the pastor who's trying to mess with your life. It's the author of Hebrews that says you must lay aside every encumbrance, anything, even if it's an okay thing, anything that interferes with your running for Jesus must be laid aside. Paul says the same thing with a different metaphor in 2 Timothy 2.4 when he writes to Timothy, No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life. Somebody says, well, sure they do. We know the stories about soldiers. Yeah, that's why we have such a hard time sometimes. But a soldier who's serious about winning the battle or winning the war doesn't fool around with all sorts of other stuff. He has his mind in the place where he is stationed on the job that he is assigned. And so it is with Christians. We must lay aside those things that would distract us from following Christ with all of our hearts. That means that no Christian ought to get so tangled up in hobbies or diversions or relationships or pastimes or civic affairs or other responsibilities that he is kept from running hard for Jesus. Anything that slows us up needs to be laid aside. Now for you, it might be too much overtime. Or it might be too much golf. Or too much television. Or too close attention to the stock market. Or too many extracurricular activities that your kids are running to and fro every hour of the day. Or too much time online. Or too much time spent in your yard. Or too much sleep. Or too much debt. Or too much free time. Or too much money in your pocket. It can be anything. Now, none of those things are wrong in their proportions. But the moment that they keep us from church or keep us from our Bibles or keep us from being generous or keep us from loving others or keep us from prayer or keep us from being and doing whatever it is that God requires of us, we need to recognize them as an encumbrance and lay them aside. Anything 
that slows us down must be set aside, even good things. There are all sorts of things that can keep us from serving Christ as we ought. Lest you think I'm being overzealous and pointing out a few of the particulars, listen to Jesus, the most zealous of them all in Luke 14:26. He says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. When Jesus uses the word hate there, he's not saying that all of us should hate our fathers and mothers. What he's saying is this, if I can translate it for you. Even your own family can be an encumbrance to your Christian faith. Even your own family, if you pour too much energy in your family or if you have someone in your family who is constantly dragging you away from Jesus, even your own family can be an encumbrance that must be laid aside. That doesn't sound right to us because in churches today, family is almost bigger than God. But Jesus says, fathers, mothers, wives, children, brothers, sisters, anyone who drags you away from me, you must let them go. doesn't mean you don't love them doesn't mean that you don't serve them in ways that are appropriate, but you don't allow anything or anyone to drag you away from Jesus. Now, in our context, the occasions for family members dragging us away from the faith may be few and far between. But if we are forced to decide between laying aside family or not running well in the Christian race, Jesus says we lay aside family. That's how serious he is that we run without encumbrances. In fact... He says, if and when the time comes when we must choose between running well and protecting our own life, we lay aside our own life, Luke 14:26. So let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. What do you need to lay aside? I pray this morning that God would put something specific in each heart that needs to be laid aside. And I pray that right now the Holy Spirit would do that. What do you need to lay aside? And as God brings it to mind, would you confess it back to Him and ask Him for His help even now in the quietness of where you sit? And would you commit to tell someone else about it before this day is over so that they might pray for you and hold you accountable and help you to lay those things aside? Number one, we must lay aside encumbrances and sins. Number two, we must run. We must run. Let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us and let us run. It's important to notice here that the Christian life doesn't consist merely in laying things aside, but in running. And so the first thing I would say to you under this second heading is that the Christian life is one of action. In other words, we should not be content simply to do away with the sins of commission, the encumbrances and the things that entangle us and become decent moral people. We shouldn't be content with that. Lots of people in churches are content just to do away with the bad stuff and be nice people. But that makes no more sense than a runner getting himself ready for a race, peeling off his warm-up suit, taking off his big gold jewelry, but never actually stepping onto the track and running. makes no sense. Why even show up at all? That's not what the Christian life is about. The Christian life is one of running, of action. And so, we lay aside sins and encumbrances, yes. 
But we lay aside sins and encumbrances not simply so that we can look the part, but so that we will be free to do our part. We lay aside sins and encumbrances not only so that we can be freed up from the bad stuff, but so that we can be freed up for the good stuff, so that we can run. That's the whole point. You take the warm-ups off so you can run. Some of us who have on our Christian track clothes and look like we're ready to run need to take the next step and actually get into the race. And some of us, perhaps, who were in the race need to get back in after we've pulled off to the side for a little while to take a breather. Some of you may have been on the racetrack and now you're sitting on the infield watching people go around you. You need to run. Running is an active thing. So as you move along the course of the Christian life, you don't just find signposts that tell you what you shouldn't do and what you should get rid of. But as you run along the course of the Christian life, all along the path, you find signposts that remind you of things that you should positively be doing, of actions that you need to be taking. Let me read you a few of those signposts. Pursue peace with all men, Hebrews 12:13, and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. I wonder if any of you need to pursue peace with someone today. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, Hebrews 13:2, for by this some have entertained angels without knowing it. Remember the prisoners as though in prison with them, Hebrews 13:3, and those who are ill-treated, since you you're so in the which you that good as God pleased. Go and make disciples of all the nations, Matthew twenty eight nineteen, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Bless those who persecute you, Romans thirteen fourteen. Do not provoke your children to wrath, there's the lay aside, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, a positive command. Rejoice always, 1 Thessalonians 5.16. And verse 17, pray without ceasing. James 1.27, visit orphans and widows in their distress. James 5.16, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. 1 Peter 2.13, submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every human institution. 1 John 4.7, love one another. 3 John 6, send them, namely the missionaries, on their way in a worthy manner. Sign up for the nursery. That one's not in the Bible, but I think it's at least implied. Let the little children come to me and do not forbid them because you would rather be doing other things. You see what Hebrews 12.1 is getting at? Christianity is a race, not a beauty contest. Christianity is not simply getting rid of all the bad stuff so that you can look Christian and feel like you have a clean conscience. But Christianity also involves actively, lovingly, fervently doing the good stuff. There are a thousand different ways that that can work out. There are a thousand ways that these biblical calls to action may pan out in your individual lives. And no two people's races are going to look exactly the same. But what is exactly the same is that every believer ought to be running. Every believer ought to be going somewhere, doing something, actively, intentionally, lovingly, fervently, practically serving the Lord and serving other people. So I just ask you this morning if you're doing that. 
Are you serving the Lord? It doesn't have to be in a ministry with a title to it or a name to it, but are you actively serving the Lord and serving other people? Is your life leaving a real mark for Jesus? Are you running or the one observing? See, the vital question this morning is not simply whether you've stripped off the outer garments of the world. It's not simply whether you've filled out an entry form and entered the Christian race. It's not whether or not you know how to run. It's whether or not you're actually running. Let us run, says our author. And let us do so, he says, with endurance. With endurance. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. What does that mean? It simply means that we need to run and not give up until we cross the tape and find ourselves in the arms of Jesus. It means that nothing short of heaven should ever make us pull off the track. Not persecution, not busyness, not the death of a loved one, not frustration with the church, not changes in our health, not old age. Nothing should make us pull off the track. All of those things may affect how fast we are able to run, but none of them should affect whether or not we run. None of those things should make us stop. There's always some way, no matter what the circumstances, for us to run for Jesus. Let me give a parenthetical encouragement to those of you who may feel in your bodies like you've run out of gas in the tank and you really don't have enough steam left to go out and run. Or that perhaps because of physical difficulty in advancing years, there's not much you can really do. I want to encourage you to say, don't let those thoughts stop the race. Can you cut the church lawn? Probably not. Can you go and serve breakfast at the City Gospel Mission? Maybe not. But there are things that those of you who are in that position can actively and aggressively do. There are forms of service that wouldn't require great physical strength or stamina, that wouldn't require large amounts of income if you're retired. And I want to just mention one of them this morning, besides the nursery. Pray without ceasing. Pray without ceasing. Those of you who are advancing in years and who are facing numerous physical challenges cannot do everything that a 30-year-old or a 40-year-old can do. But you do have both time and tenderness that most young, healthy people do not have. What if that tenderness and that time were given over to praying every week for every single person on the church roster? What if ten older Christians in the church were praying for me every Thursday and Friday as I prepared these sermons? What if those same ten people were praying every week, or even every day for each one of our adopted missionaries? What might God do through you, senior saints? How far and how well might you continue to run by simply committing to pray without ceasing? Now, all of you, do you see? The Christian race is one that excludes none of God's children. Everyone can in some way run, maybe not at different speeds, maybe not in the same activities, but everyone can actively, aggressively, lovingly, fervently, intentionally serve the Lord and serve other people. No one is useless in the work of the kingdom. So let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us and let us, each and every one of us, run 
And thirdly, let us look. Let us lay aside, verse 1, every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus. Or as the King James puts it, looking unto Jesus. We are to lay aside, we are to run, and most importantly, we are to look. The whole race as we run for Jesus is to be run looking unto Jesus. For instance, how is it that we actually lay aside our sins? By looking to Jesus, our Savior. What motivates us to keep running? By looking unto Jesus, who waits for us at the right hand of the throne of God into whose arms we will run at the end of the track? How do we keep from veering off course, from running out of our lane as we run? By fixing our eyes on Jesus so that we can run straight to Him. The key, verse 2 is telling us, to running the Christian race is looking unto Jesus, fixing our eyes on Jesus. So the author of Hebrews encourages us in this verse to do that. And he tells us to do it in four different ways or for four different reasons. I want to give them each one to you again in track and field terminology. Looking unto Jesus, how do we do it? First, look to him as your sponsor. Your sponsor. Let us run the race, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author of our faith. Jesus is the author of Faith. He is the one, in other words, who paid for us to enter this race called the Christian life in the first place. He sponsored us, if you will, with his own blood. It is he who lived perfectly so that we don't have to. It is he who died on the cross so that we might be forgiven. It is he who has risen from the dead so that we too might walk and even run in newness of life. It is he who always lives Hebrews 7, to make intercession for us. And it is He who woos us to Himself, urging us and drawing us and willing us to believe and to run. He is the author of our faith. He is the heavenly sponsor who has paid our race fee. And so when we run, we need to remember that. When we serve, we need to remember that. We ought never forget why it is that we're able to run. We ought never to forget how much it costs for us to enter this race and to have the privilege of serving God. And we ought never forget who paid the price. And remembering that the crucified Savior is the author of faith, that He is the one who paid our race fee, we will be motivated not to give up and not to be lazy. If you're running with the nail-pierced feet of Jesus in your sight lines, it would be very difficult for you to stop on the side and prop up your own feet on the bench and decide that you're not going to run anymore. No, if we fix our eyes on Jesus, we will run because He is worthy of our crossing the tape in His name. So let us look to Jesus as our sponsor, as the author, as the one who got us into the Christian life with his shed blood in the first place. Number two, let us look to him as our trainer. The author says, let us run the race, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. He's the perfecter of our faith. So Jesus not only paid for us to enter the race called Christianity, but he has been there all along to train us to perfect us, to help us be the runners that we ought to be. 
No one starts out knowing how to run well and as fast as they can, but Jesus acts as our coach, as our trainer. Now, he's, he's far more than that. We understand that. But we understand that he is the one who strengthens our legs. He is the one who teaches us how to run. He is the one who perfects our faith. So we run, and we run well, and we get better at it by looking to Jesus, the perfecter of our faith, our trainer. Now, think that out. I gave you just a few moments ago a list of rules about running. A list of scripture verses that remind us of all sorts of things that we ought to be doing for the Lord. Things like pray without ceasing, visit orphans and widows, make disciples of all the nations, and so on. Now those statements are wonderfully helpful and true. And they remind us that we should run. And they inform us how we should run. But those statements in and of themselves, cannot give us the strength to run. In other words, you can mark the course out for someone and tell them that they ought to be running all day long. You can show them how to do it. You can lay out the course. You can paint the lines. You can hang up the tape at the end of the track and say, go do it. But if that person has no strength in her legs or no will in her heart to run, she will never run. And so it is with God's law. God tells us what we ought to do, and that's helpful. But God's laws by themselves are not going to motivate us to run. They're going to tell us how. They're going to tell us that we should. They're going to mark out the lanes for us. But we need motivation and strength from somewhere else. Namely, from God himself. And from his son, Jesus, who loves us and gave himself for us. As we look to him, our hearts are strengthened. As we come to him for daily strength and encouragement, both in his word and in prayer, we find that he gives it. That's why it's so important for you not to simply read the Bible looking for rules to follow, but to read the Bible, Old and New Testaments, looking for Jesus. Because you'll find the rules. They'll stand out to you. But Jesus is the one who's going to give you the strength and the courage and the motivation to obey them. Has that not been your experience that when you pull aside in the morning or the evening and turn your eyes upon Jesus, that he helps you, that he encourages you, that he prepares you for the day ahead or helps you make sense of the day that was? Very often I find that in my mornings of looking unto Jesus, he gives me a verse or a character study, or a nugget of some sort in his word that's just what I need to keep me running that day. Jesus is like an athletic trainer who is always hard at work massaging our souls and feeding our souls and healing our souls and encouraging our souls and perfecting our faith so that we may truly run. So look to him as your sponsor. Look to him as your trainer. Look to him, thirdly, as your example. As your example. Every successful athlete, and really anyone who's successful in any field, will tell you that they were successful partly because of some role model, some example, some hero that they looked up to, that they learned from, and most importantly, that they imitated. So young boys learn to pitch a baseball by watching Major League Pitchers. There won't be many young boys learning to pitch a baseball in Cincinnati in the coming years, it doesn't seem. But that's what happens. You see it happen. You go to Little League games and you see them uh, preparing their stance like some player that plays for the Reds. We learn by imitation. If you ask me 
where I learned to preach, I will tell you that it wasn't primarily in a preaching class. I learned how to preach whatever I do know by listening to men whom I thought were good examples. That's how all of us learn and succeed, largely by imitation. So then, how do we run the race of the Christian life? How do we keep going when we're tempted to give up? How do we press forward when we face opposition? By looking unto Jesus. By fixing our eyes on Jesus, who, for the joy set before him, endured the cross. Now, do you see what the author of Hebrews is doing? He is setting up Jesus as an example for us. How do we run? By looking to Jesus. And then he tells us how he ran. He ran and didn't give up for the joy set before him. He endured the cross because he was looking to his reward. So when you look at Jesus and you say to yourself, he faced immense difficulty and criticism and accusations and pain. How did he keep going? How did he keep going when God laid on him the heaviest burden of us all of them all, namely the full weight of all of our sins? How did he keep running? He did it for the joy set before him by looking to his reward. And we should run in the same way. So what the author of Hebrews is doing here is he's saying, if you want to run well, run like Jesus who looked to his reward and kept going. Now, that's just one way that Jesus is our example here in verse 2. But there are many, many other ways that Jesus is our example. He teaches us to run, and if we would run in imitation of him, we would run and we would run well. And that means that each one of us would do well to study the life of Jesus, to ruminate on him and admire him and imitate his example. No, we don't have the strength to do it on our own. That's where the last point comes in. He's the one who trains us and gives us strength to do it. But as he does that, we can become like him. There's so much in his life, namely everything in his life that's worthy of our imitation. And so if we would run well, the author of Hebrews tells us, we would do so by looking unto Jesus, by fixing our eyes on Jesus who ran best of all. By looking to Jesus as our hero and our role model and the perfect example of how to run this race. Finally, look to him as your reward. Look to him as your sponsor, your trainer, your example, and as your reward. Now again, think about physical racing. No one runs a race without a reward in mind. Maybe it's an Olympic medal. Maybe it's a T-shirt with a flying pig on the front. Maybe it's just the satisfaction of being able to say, I completed this 5K or I beat my friend at the picnic or whatever it is. But everyone runs for some reward or another. Maybe it's just to get in shape. But for all of us, if we run, the one chief motivating factor is the reward. The one thing that keeps us plodding one foot in front of the other is the prospect of whatever reward we are pursuing. So then, what reward does the believer receive for crossing the finish line of the Christian race? What is the believer's prize when he crosses the tape? We saw last week in Hebrews 11 that it's heaven. Verse 14, these people were looking for a country of their own. But we also said last week that Jesus himself is what makes heaven heavenly. Heaven is not heaven if Jesus isn't there, our Savior. 
So ultimately, Jesus is the reward at the end of our race. Our greatest joy in heaven will not be to see our friends, will not be to see streets of gold, will not be to be without pain. Our greatest reward in heaven will be to see him who has, verse 2, sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. It is he, our beloved Savior, that will make heaven heavenly. And it is he who will welcome us to come and sit with him on his throne, searching his wounds and gazing in his face and wrapped up in his love. What a reward that we have. What a motivation to run and not grow faint. What a motivation to hasten our way to the finish line of this Christian race. When we finish our race, when we cross the tape at the end of the track, we will run directly into the waiting arms of Jesus, our King, our Savior, our elder brother, our best friend, our priest, our benefactor. That is what we run for. That is who we run to. We run our race looking unto Jesus. So, sponsor, trainer, example, and reward all in one man. If you're an athlete with such a magnificent friend, would you not run your heart out for him? Would not every pace be run with him in mind and every breath be taken for his honor? who paid for you to run, who trained you to run, who showed you by His example, who waits for you at the end of the tape, would you not run your heart out for Him? Then how much more should we who have been bought with Jesus' blood and strengthened by His power and taught by His example and motivated by His reward, how much more should we lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us and run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus.